0: welcome 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 to the subhub podcast i'm mk sullivan and i'm danny marino
1: and today our episode while we are recording it early this is actually going to come out the day before black canyons which is really exciting it's finally here Yay. <laughs> i uh
0: i'm very excited to be racing at black canyons but what i'm most excited about is to pass out our new stickers. Yeah. <laughs> I told, I think uh, Corinne messaged me the other day and I was like, I'm going to be handing out I run Sub ultra stickers, like on the start line of my first like long ultra. You should just carry them like in a fanny
1: pack and whenever just you get in the gate station, just like throw them out. And people be like, what is that? <laughs> just jumping on the floor, getting in the way. No, I love it. That's yes. actually so funny. I love that what is that an oxymoron or you know the fact that you're running an ultra and passing out some? What, what is that what do you call that a contradiction let <laughs> we'll i'm con- a walking contradict walking contradiction. The irony, the irony i think it's the oh irony. i like that too <laughs> oh the irony um yeah so we are very very excited to be passing out some stickers i guess this is kind of our fish like merch first yeah. first allotment of merch um, I will also have many, many stickers that our very own MK will have cut by hand. So blood and tears and happiness put into <laughs> these stickers to be ready uh for Black Canyons.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So stick them on your water bottle, stick them on your car, give them to your friends. If you see us at Black Canyon, we'll try to have a bag with us at all times so that we can, yeah, pass out a bunch of stickers. Yeah. I should just put a
1: sign on myself to like ask, ask me. For- me- <laughs>
0: Yeah, or just ask, ask me about my stickers.
1: Ask me anything, but actually only ask me about my stickers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes. Um, so yeah, we have <laughs> stickers. Um, another fun announcement. So we hope that you all saw, I guess, kind of backward walking backwards walking I don't know how to say that right rewinding it back um hopefully you entered our giveaway um so at this point we don't have the winner because we are recording this early um but by the time this comes out we'll have our two winners who would have each won a race entry to Loon Mountain Race and Cirque Series Snowbird a pair of craft shoes uh, a UAG I realize it's probably pronounced "dope kit," not "dop kit." Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I looked at it afterwards, "dop kit." Uh, Runners binder PDF, Grayson Murphy planner. Like, oh my it's gosh, November second. Uh, and never second, well. yeah. It's it's such a sick giveaway. So hopefully you had a chance to enter that. We do have plans for more giveaways this year. Um, so just you know, follow us on Instagram if you aren't already. Uh, so hopefully if you didn't get a chance to win this one you could win the next one um and yeah, then congrats also- to our winners even though we don't know yeah. who they are yet that's <laughs> our winners i was kind of thinking it would be fun too to like get some content of them at each race if they do end up doing the double and posting it on our instagram as like a collab with them i think that'd be pretty cool
0: yeah i'm into it yeah and, and then the other it. thing yeah uh, that we're that we're excited to start. Um we're hoping that you guys will put some links in our um, in our website, in the bio for this, in our Instagram. so make sure you go check it out. We're gonna start a monthly newsletter. Um, the first edition will come out on March first, so it still will be a little bit. but um after you know, some thought and especially like, you guys have already heard our opinions on like the Troy stuff. Like we want to provide you guys with a space where we give you guys results and maybe some stories so that you can kind of go back and look at those results throughout the year, um, especially at the end of the year when you're looking for sub ultra athletes to add into your award picks. Um, but yeah, anything else in the newsletter, Danny?
1: Um Yeah, just iterating that we'll have the results and then um, we're going to select an athlete of the month each yes. year um or sorry each month we're gonna select an athlete of the month each <laughs> month uh someone whose results stood out to us or someone who just stood out to us for other reasons um so yeah you can keep that in your back pocket do we want to release or say the name yeah no you guys oh, don't to okay we'll keep it a secret <laughs> but mk and i have been hard at the whiteboarding creative thinking lately (laughs) with titles for all of our new stuff um hopefully (laughs) you've also had a chance to see that we had a new series sub-series launched within our podcast called the U.S. Championship Chronicles um first two episodes are already out if you haven't listened to those already um but yeah now we have another fun section that this intro is kind of kicking off um, this is going to be called drum roll. Go ahead, MK. <laughs>
0: Candid coaching. <laughs> do, do, do. Truthful convos with some of the best coaches in the trail running world. <laughs> we need like a, do, 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 like yeah. a, a sound that we add on top of that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. not the like, wah, wah, that's kind <laughs> too much. <laughs> like I'm imagining like fairy lights almost, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, But yeah, we kind of teased this. We've teased this probably a couple of times, but we are very excited about this because what these episodes will be focused on is we will bring a coach in. Um, We are going to start with MK's coach and then we will bring in my coach and provide kind of that inside to the coaching athlete relationship uh, conversation that happens like during a training block leading up to a big race, um, post-race, et cetera. Uh, MK and I both have coaches. So we 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 personally are big fans of having coaches. Um, Some people coach themselves, which is also awesome. So maybe we'll have some of those people on. But yeah, we're gonna not only have our coaches, but also bring on other
0: coaches who specialize. We're trying to mainly focus on like sub-ultra stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so hopefully we'll get to sprinkle that out kind of throughout the year for you guys. Um, and yeah, we're really excited to be adding a little another sub series, but like Danny said, um, today's episode, our first one is with my coach, Rick Floyd. Um, I've been working with Rick for about seven years now. Um, I think I started working with him right before my marathon debut at CIM in 2018. Um, But I have known Rick for a little bit longer than that. When I was in college, he was uh, the volunteer assistant at Nevada for, I think, a year and a half or so. And um, so worked with him a little bit when I was an athlete at the university. And then after I graduated, we became friends. And I was looking for somebody who I thought could help me on the roads as well as the trails, because I knew that that was something that I wanted to pursue and um, Rick was like the only person that I knew that ran trails at that point um, and I loved him as a coach and so yeah we've been working together since then and he also coaches uh, for those of you who don't already know my friend and I guess uh, teammate Helen Mino Faulkner uh, who was third at CCC last year so hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation and a little bit of an insight into like what my coaching athlete coach athlete relationship looks like.
1: Yeah. And I am not coached by Rick, but I am a big fan of Rick. Uh, I really respect how he trains MK and Helen. Um, So I'm also very excited to listen to this episode. And we should note, too, that um, I am not going to be in on this conversation
0: because that's part of like the fun of the series.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Just a little MK Rick chit chat. Hopefully you guys, <laughs> hopefully it's not as long as some of our phone calls. So <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> maybe it is. We'll see. But <laughs> hopefully you guys enjoy. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and before we switch to Rick Floyd, um, that's his last name, right? Yep. Okay. I don't know why that's always so hard for me to remember. Uh, I will also be racing um tomorrow. Uh so I'll be doing the Mesa half marathon. And then I will be heading over to Black Canyons. And I was telling MK that um I purpose I like want to run fast so that I can get over <laughs> and watch as much of the race as possible because it's like it says it's 30 minutes, but I don't know with traffic if it's longer, but I'm trying to get there before um definitely before MK hits the 50K. Um, but even before the front guys would be like the most ideal. So myself and Tabor Hemming are both gonna go run and then try and you know head over as soon as possible so it's gonna be fun
0: it's gonna be a sub hub party at black canyon 100k yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so best of luck to danny best of luck to me yes uh check out our results after you listen to this podcast (laughs) yeah exactly um all right enjoy your conversation with mk and rick This episode is brought to you by our friends at never second never second uses a modular system that allows you to create the exact carbohydrate formula for your need and activity their products are meant to be mixed and matched so that you can have 30 60 90 or even 120 grams of carbs per hour as a professional athlete i was introduced to never second about a year ago after a rough race at the mont blanc marathon i was trying to take in gels that required a lot of water But without a crew and the fact that there weren't enough aid stations to adequately match my intake, it became quite the struggle of a day. After that experience, I started using Never Second in training because their liquid gels weren't as sticky and require less water and are much easier to get down, making my race day and training nutrition immediately more successful and simple. Their gels also contain 200 milligrams of sodium, which is a real bonus on hot days and especially humid days, if you're me. And if you want to try Never Second, just head to neversecond.com. That's never N E V E R number 2.com. N E V E R number two dot com. and use code SUBHUB25 for a 25% discount on all of your orders. Hey Rick, how are you?
2: I'm good. How are you doing?
0: I am good. I'm well, when this episode comes out, I'll be running black Canyon tomorrow, but um, as of right now, you have me kind of in my taper. And so I'm going a little bit taper crazy, but not too taper crazy. Seems to yeah. be a lot more volume going into this race than typical marathon 50 K builds.
2: Yeah. We're keeping the volume up a little bit higher this time. Um, and I think that should help too with the, the pre-race jitters going into the race, but in general, since it's such a long race, you don't have to be perfectly tapered or, or sharp for the race. Um, so you're ready to go. We
0: can, we can talk about this later, but I feel like you don't taper me much anyways, so I'm kind of used to it at this point. (laughs) Um, so yeah, we kind of already did an intro of how you and I met, but I feel like we should maybe talk about it a little bit more. What do you remember, I guess, about when or how we met and got this whole thing started?
2: Yeah. So we met, so we were living, my wife and I were living in Bend, Oregon. This is back in 2016. My wife was going to apply to medical school. And so she got into a couple of schools and Reno was kind of our top choice. And so we decided to move to Reno in the summer of 2016. And at that point I had decided that I wanted to get into collegiate coaching. So I'd reached out to the head coach at UNR and, and I just said, do you have any openings or any opportunities for me to like come help out? I don't come from a collegiate running background. So it was kind of a reach, but um, he was willing to interview me. And so it's kind of a funny story. I had actually driven our um, moving truck from Bend to Reno straight to the interview and like had <laughs> parked it at, you know, that restaurant that he like always takes like recruits and stuff to
0: Archie's across the street.
2: No, no, no. The other one, like the brick, the, the brick oh,
0: stone house.
2: Yeah, yeah, stone house. Yeah. So, so I'd like driven and I like literally drove from Bent and like drove and parked in the parking lot for the interview. It was funny. Um, but yeah, I, so I think that's when I once I started working with you um, and R, uh, that was your last season. Yeah. And so that would have been 2016. And yeah. you were not running cross country, but training for the upcoming track season.
0: Yeah. So I wasn't really around a lot that semester. I was like, I think I was allowed to train with the team like two or three days a week because I was out of eligibility for cross country. So yeah. I spent a lot of time on the ditch trail by myself because I lived close to the ditch trail. Mm-hmm. I, that, which is probably why like anytime you've told me to run on the ditch trail for this training block, I've died a little bit inside, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I feel like track season um, we get to know each other a little bit, but I feel like we mostly became like friends when I started dating Tommy, who was working with your friend, Eric Schulte. Yeah. Um, And they started trail running together and they were trail running with you. And I got all mixed up in that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how it ended up working out. And then I think once you were done with college read, running and then I, decided that I wasn't going to continue down the collegiate path. Um, and then I was kind of pursuing trail running stuff, races on my own, that at that point we kind of, we had started to run together. I remember, I think that was the first time we ran together, like a big trail run. I remember we ran Castle Peak like in August, right before you were going to have surgery. Yeah. And um, I just remember looking back when like you were hiking one section, and I remember telling you like, hiking is running too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And it's funny, like looking back on that run, this section that I was hiking, I feel like I would never hike now. Yeah. Like right. I'm just such a better trail runner. But at that point I yeah. was just, I thought you were gonna kill me that day.
2: It <laughs> was it was like a come to Jesus moment for like your trail running career. Oh, for um, sure. Um, but then yeah. I think right right after that, that's when you had foot surgery, right?
0: Yep. I had foot surgery in August of um 2017. And then I had to take some time off. I moved to Vegas like in December of Mm -hmm. 2017 uh moved in with Tommy and then kind of was like I came back from that surgery and was like I'm gonna do track like by myself how fun (laughs) and so (laughs) I worked with um Jabri Harris who was the UNLV coach at the time for like I think I ran the Carlsbad 5000 and that was like my first experience with like post-collegiate coaching and Jabri was great but Training for a track event by yourself is extremely boring. Like without a team, it was just not something that was that interesting to me. So then I had a full crisis, thought that I didn't like to run anymore, told Tommy I was done running. (laughs) And then he was like, maybe we just like don't run track and we try to do something different. And I remember we signed up for the Silver State Half Marathon and that was going to be my first ever trail race. And I was so excited. And then I rolled my ankle, classic MK. Yeah. Um, but then after that, I think was right around the time that you and I started talking about you being my coach.
2: Yeah, and yeah, I remember the our first conversations with it. You were like pretty reluctant at first, <laughs> and um, and I think it's because at that point I was running, I was also working um, like at a fitness center, um, and I wasn't coaching a bunch of other runners at that time. I think I was coaching one. Other lady at the time at the fitness club for some trail running. And um, so I had thought about kind of getting coaching. I definitely had decided after the year of coaching UNR, like I did not want to go into collegiate coaching. <laughs>
0: Understandable.
2: <laughs> and, uh, and it definitely wasn't going to work out, anyways, with my wife in medical school. So um, that's when I once I started getting into sky racing and I'd race Silverstay and I started doing well at some trail races. And I think then that started to give me a little bit of credibility then that I kind of knew what I was doing. And so I think the combination of like my coaching background and, and the racing is like, okay, well let's do a little trial and error, but I definitely remember you being a little bit hesitant and like, <laughs> oh, I'm not really sure. And so it definitely took a little bit for like the buy-in period for, for coaching, but so yeah. far it seems to work.
0: Yeah. So far, I remember thinking like I wanted a coach to train me for CIM. Cause I was going to run my debut marathon and try to qualify for the trials. But yeah. I knew that I also wanted to like trail race. And you were the only person I knew who like coached and also knew what a trail race even was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, ah, Rick could probably do this. Like we can yeah. give it a shot. And
1: yeah.
0: I mean, it worked. You got me to run, um, I think I ran 243 or something or like two forty four low. So I hit the Olympic trial standard like the very first time. Yeah. Um, and that was I think kind of when I was like, okay, for sure, like. Rick is my coach forever now.
2: Okay, okay that'll work.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that I I think that's uh, the evolution of our coaching beginnings, I guess. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Um. So I guess, did you always know that you wanted to coach or was like collegiate coaching kind of the beginning of that thought? I don't
2: know. I mean, when I was younger, I mean, I remember in middle school, I played like football and baseball and basketball. So I don't come from an endurance background. And so, but I remember in middle school, just like writing down constantly like football plays, like on my notebook and just always thinking about like, I remember like being like, I'm going to be a NFL football coach, like one day. And um, I think that part of me, like wanting to like figure out the process, like from an early age was something that I always enjoyed. And so, It wasn't something that I was necessarily pursuing. It wasn't until I was, um, it was about 2005 that I started doing triathlons and that, that was kind of my first intro into getting into the endurance world. Um, I guess like to rewind back a little bit, my senior year, I did decide to not play football, which was like a, a killer because football is like, my favorite sport. I, I love football, but being like five foot five and 120 pounds, it was not going anywhere. <laughs> um, but I remember like sitting in the parking lot of high school and being like trying to decide because I had some really good friends growing up. I, I had a swimming pool in my backyard. So I always swam, but not like I'd never taken a swim lesson, never swam competitively. And so I remember my friends, like I would race them all the time. And I was kind of just like the guy who was like really fast, like sprinting in the pool, but with like no technique. And one of, and and one of my friends was on the swim team and he was really good. And he was like, you should just come to the swim team. Like, you don't have to like try out. You can just like basically show up, right? There's like, if you're willing to show up at five in the morning for practice, like- You're on the team. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I, I quit football. All my friends, like my best friend was a quarter, that was the quarterback in high school. And so it was like this, they were like, what are you doing? Like, and I was like, I don't know. I just like, I'm just gonna try something different. And so I swam and somehow I made- um, state swimming that year in like the 50 and the 100. And I was really fast at sprinting, but I had zero technique. And literally a coach told me like, when we would go to swim practice, I was not even allowed to do the other strokes because I was so terrible. <laughs> and um, so that was kind of like my intro into like an endurance. And then I after that, I went into college and I, I never really thought anything about it. And um, there was an Ironman and uh, where I grew up in Coeur d'Alene. And one of my friends took me down. I had no idea what an Ironman was. Like, I didn't know it consisted of swing, bike and running. And so we went down there and watched the finish line. And I remember specifically watching this guy's, his name was Matt Seeley. And he was kind of this local legend out of uh, Pulse in Montana. And um, he was a math teacher. And I remember he got like fifth in the race. Fifth, maybe third. And I remember thinking like, this guy's a math teacher. And like, he's like doing this, like it can't be that hard. Like I was <laughs> so naive. And so I just remember start I just went down the next day. I bought a bike, I bought a wetsuit and was like, I'm gonna do the uh, quarter lane triathlon, it's like Olympic distance race in eight weeks. Um, and so I just started training. I had no idea how to train. I basically took my sprint training and swimming and applied that to the the mile swim and then just biked and ran um whatever for training. And um so I had done this race and I was like hooked on endurance sports because you at that point I was like, oh, this is like something where I can like, if I work hard, I can get better at it. You know, it's not like a talent thing necessarily like at at that point. And so I was pretty decent at swimming and uh, not great at biking. I was always pretty good at running, but it's probably just because I was fairly small and I was always kind of quick, like I did, like I was like a wide receiver. And so I did quick sports. Mm -hmm. And so I picked up on it pretty quick. And um, basically for the next 10 years that like consumed my life of doing Triathlons and building all the way up to the Ironman distance. Um, And so moving forward, like with my coaching career, I started um, coaching like little kids, like teaching them how to swim at the YMCA when I was in college down at Boise. Uh, So I went to Boise State from 2007 to 2010. And um, so I was teaching these little kids how to swim at the YMCA, and um, I just needed a, a job to do on the side while I was doing school and triathlon. And then one day the, the master's coach didn't show up for master's swimming and they were like, Hey, can you write a workout for the swimming? At that point I've been doing triathlon for a couple of years. So I knew like the structure of swim workouts and things. And at that point I was already kind of like, I, I remember watching like, um, do you remember like uh flow track and like flow swim, like those websites? I don't
0: you know thing? that I was ever on flow swim, but flow track for yeah, sure it was yeah, like yeah. the beginning flow, of college for me. I
2: think it was flow swimmers, but it was like similar to flow track and basically it was like yeah. you get workouts and things. And Um, so I was like already like watching those and like getting workouts and like learning about the process of like swimming and, and how to put together these sets. And so I was like, sure, I can like write it up on the board. And so I started coaching, um, and they were like, Hey, would you like to just sub when some people like miss? And it was, I remember I was, I was probably, gosh, what was I like 24 at the time? And I remember it was like very overwhelming because we had like the masters national swim champ, like in one of the lanes and like there was a, almost a division one swimmer in like in every lane. It was like, like a Duke swimmer, university of Arizona swimmer, like a cow swimmer. Like one guy had been fourth in Olympic trials. Like it was like, so I was like, I think that I was approachable in the fact of like, they knew that I only knew so much, but also they knew that I was like, I was willing to show up at five o'clock in the morning. And, um, I knew enough about what I was doing to at least give them decent advice. And I was really attracted to working with like the swimmers who were like either the beginners or like really slow swimmers that were like, especially like a lot of the intro triathletes. Mm -hmm. And so I would do a lot of work with them. And as long as there was a set on the board, the fast swimmers, elite swimmers, you know, they would just swim their set and and do what they needed to do. They've been doing this for, you know, 25 or 30 years. And so I started doing that. And then they asked me if I would then coach like the group, like four days a week. And so then I had, three classes every morning and I would coach and I was basically coaching every day. And then I was asked to coach on the age group swim team. And at this point, and at this point I had never done like a breaststroke, like in the pool. It's, it's crazy. Like, but I was like, I was studying like watching videos and like the, the coaches were teaching me, I was willing to learn everything. And so I think that that the desire to learn the technique and really try to figure out what it was, and like how to get better at it. And especially coming from where I was, I knew like as a swimmer who didn't grow up swimming, I was more relatable to a lot of people. And so they found that easier for me to explain ways because it wasn't like you were just this person who grew up like a little fish in the water. It was like, oh, you just catch the water. And, and so I think that that helped a lot of people. And so at this point I was uh, like doing triathlons. I started doing triathlons and I was like, getting like top three overall, like in most of all of the triathlons I was doing and, um, qualifying like for Kona and like age group nationals and things like that. And so I really wanted to pursue triathlons professionally. And my wife wanted to go back, go back to school to go to medical school. And so I had reached out to some coaches, I was offered like a bunch of age group swim jobs, like, um, like in Denver North Carolina, different places, but it was basically places where Meg was like applying to school, but also where I could work. Um, and ironically, the only place I wasn't offered a swimming job was Bend, Oregon, where we ended up moving to where she was finishing her schooling. But, um, so I ended up working at a running store there. Um, and I turned pro after that and started racing the last few years there as a professional triathlete. Um, and while I was in Bend, I worked at the community college and I was the coach at the running club and the triathlon club. And so at this point now we're like at 20 12 to like 2015. And so I had now been coaching for like a number of years. So I was, you know, pretty decent swim coach and running coach. And I knew enough about, I'd like train with like enough elite athletes. And there was this great group in bend that I trained with and learned a lot about training theories and, um, they all had coaches. And so it was really a good, like baptism by fire to be able to like train with them and learn like what people are doing, like at the top of the sport, you know? So, um, And then basically from after Bend, um, we made it to Reno and that's where I drove my moving van and met Kurt and met you and yeah, started run
0: coaching. I didn't realize that you had been run coaching for so long. Like I knew that you had coached in Bend, but I guess I just didn't realize how long you guys were in Bend like since 2012, that was like my entire college career, basically.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So we were there because Meg had to go, she had got a degree in marketing. And so she had to take all of the prereqs to get into medical Whoa. school. And so we wanted to just live somewhere that was like great for triathlon training and stuff like that. So I was able to train with, you know, great people like Jesse Thomas and Matt Lieto. And uh, those guys had already had like a group. And so it was, we were able to, like, they had friends that came in and, um, you know, that were like top three in Kona. And so it was, it was an amazing experience to train and and live that life but um at that point it was i had moved on to the last year we were in bend is like when i decided that i was going to stop doing trial once and move into trail running
0: trail running yeah. and here we are here we are <laughs> <laughs> um i love i love hearing the story about you like watching videos and stuff for technique of like the swimming so that you could coach people because I feel like that, um, not necessarily that you're watching videos, but you're constantly doing research. Like nothing in my training over the last uh, six years, that's a long time, um, has stayed the same. Like it's constantly changing because it feels like you're always doing research and bringing new things into our training. Like whether it's nutrition or like, uh, sauna training or just like the way that we recover stuff like that. And so, uh, you've been doing that for a long time, it seems.
2: Yeah. 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 I think it's like my background too, coming from triathlon and having so many different sports and nutrition that I was able to bring that into trail running to where it was like, you're constantly evolving, right? Like the competition is always getting faster. Science is always getting better. A lot of the core principles stay the same, right? It's like threshold, VO2 and volume and things like that are always going to be the same. They've been the same for a long time. But there's definitely ways that you can like tweak things or try things and incorporate new ideas, um, you know, not only to make the athletes better, but also to keep them engaged and also healthy. I think we have runners that are running longer, you know, that are healthier, um, certainly, you know, into their 40s and 50s that we weren't having in previous no, generations. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think that's always evolving. I think as a coach, you know, it's kind of your responsibility to, to be that filter, to take in all that information and just try to do the best you can to provide the best resources and information for your athletes.
0: Yeah, definitely. So we'll get a little bit more into like, I guess your coaching philosophy and stuff in a little bit, but I'm thinking maybe we chat a little bit about like coach athlete relationship first. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what you think, like the cornerstone of a successful coach athlete relationship, because if you ask me or Tommy or Helen, we're just like in the cult of Rick and whatever you tell us <laughs> to do, we do, uh, you could probably ask us to jump off a bridge and we would definitely do it. So I'm just, yeah. What is your cornerstone of a uh, coach athlete relationship?
2: Yeah. I think a lot of it, you know, comes down to belief, you know, in, in the process and what you're doing. And I think once you can get, you know, like I had talked about early on, like you were reluctant. And when you have athletes that are, they're not sure to like buy into the coaching, you know, that's the worst thing that can happen. Because then they're always wondering, am I doing enough? Is this person doing this? Should we be doing this? And so once you get an athlete to believe in like the process of what you're doing, like to prepare them mentally, physically, emotionally, like for racing. Like, I think that's when you start to like cultivate this environment to succeed in individually. And so I always try to approach it. Each athlete is different and however I'm working with an athlete, every person, you know, needs something different in their training, um, in their preparation, um, you know, the style of racing, there's so many different variables. And so I really try to like individualize and have different relationships with each of my athletes. And I always tell athletes, like when I first start working with them, like the better that our relationship becomes, the better that you will perform and the the more you'll trust me and and this whole thing will work out. And so if they can, if they can buy into that and believe into it and and be patient that's when it pays off. Um, And so that's why typically the athletes that I've worked with, I've worked with since I've started trail riding, like I, I don't have athletes that come and go. Um, But I also invest a lot in the people that I work with. And I think that they understand that, that even if I don't know everything, that I'm doing my best to try to find, whatever information it is that we need and i try to work together as a team and, and if they have ideas or if we need to like reach out to other people or try new things i'm always willing to adapt and try to figure out what the situation is because i think there's a lot of different ways that you can get to the same end point in this sport and I, oftentimes i think these 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 coaches or, or programs they think like there's one way to train an athlete and it's like you need to do these specific things it's like oh threshold training or You need to do like little bits of fast running or intervals or whatever it is that these coaches, you know, live and die on. And I think each person can be different. And I, I, I think if you were able to like lock everybody up and and train them and have them run 120 miles a week and, you know, not have any relationships or outside stresses, you know, we would all train them pretty similarly. Right. But in the real life, we're training real people and these people have jobs and they have relationships and they have family issues and, you know. I think what I've tried to do, especially is like working, I typically work with like post collegiate athletes. Uh, it's like the group that I enjoy working with the most. A lot of that is my background. Like I worked in student events and student clubs um, for the last decade. And so I really enjoy working with that group, but trying to figure out how they can be successful in that time period. Cause it's, it's a struggle. It's like, i have these conversations all the time it's like well, what should i do for work should i work part time should i work full time you know like <laughs> i have these these conversations with you about you know what's too much you know and all of these stressors and it's like they have significant others or they break up with people or all of these things affect your training and people don't often realize that those all need to be factored into the training as well and so yeah. i just try to do my best to know the person and know what we need to you know be doing or or sometimes you know we need to like draw back a little bit and and uh let that person you know recover or relax or give them a little bit of space as
0: well yeah stress is stress so many people think that like they're still training inside of a bubble even though that's far from the case <laughs> whether they yeah. have a coach or not they're like oh like my you know grandpa passed away like everything's fine and it's like no like that's yeah. not okay like it's okay for that to like take out a chunk of time in your training or yeah. And if I've learned anything about this podcast, it's that there are so, well, I already knew this, but there are so many different ways to get to these races. Like um, sub ultra in general is so diverse in like the type of athletes that compete, you know, like you've got road runners, you have ski mountaineers, you have people who have been on the trails their whole lives. And so it's just, there's, there's no reason to train everybody the same because everybody's coming from a different place. Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, even Helen and I, and, uh, you know, we talk about this a lot and Helen said this on a couple of podcasts, like Helen and I come from the same exact background. Like we were literally on the same college team, like both ran track in college and in high school. And yet you train us wildly different. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like, I remember when I first met you, like you were like the alpha of like mm. the team. I remember like you weren't even around and your presence was there, like as a team. It was like, who's this MK person? Right. And so you were just kind of like this this unicorn that existed that I hadn't met yet when we first came on because you were doing cross country. And I remember Helen was like this very quiet, like shy, like almost like kind of timid person. And so she was like, she just kind of like kept herself, like did her thing, whatever was like required. And I just remember her having like this relentless like attitude, like. I remember the coach just telling her, like, just stick onto this person's, like, hip, like, in a race or something. That would be, like, the strategy, and it was, like, so effective because she was, like, sure. She was just, like, just, like, uh, would do whatever the coach told her to. Where you were, like, more systematic and you were, like, very, you would, like, come from, like, a lower mileage and, like, built up through college and, like, done the really, I felt, like, successful way of doing college mileage, you know? And so I think at that point you had kind of established that that aura like within the team that like you knew what you were doing and you were very like calculated and and were And and I
0: like collaborated on a lot of my training and racing at that point because I did like I wanted to know more about how to like train people
2: yeah yeah and so I think that you know like when I go to like coach both of you it's like you said it's very different it's like Mm -hmm. I have the same same principles right and we do similar things but just we do them in a different fashion and and two you guys even though you guys live close you guys do live differently like she gets substantially more snow and so you know she tends to do more skiing but she's much more of like an adventurous I want to go out and kind of like suffer or do these hard things and like test yourself like mentally and physically where you you come from more of like the track or like marathon mindset, it's like, give me these sessions. Like I need the numbers, like let's get this all dialed in. And then that gives you confidence to race, you know, where it's like, if, if I did that to Helen, it would just like squash her. Right. She's like, she (laughs) needs the freedom. She needs like a little bit of space. Like sometimes we do things like that are a little bit like free spirited, but for her, she, she gets confidence and enjoyment out of that. And so you both end up like at the same spot, but like coming from two different training
1: methodologies.
0: Yeah. I am very grateful that like you coach both Helen and I, because like you said, I am very systematic. I have I like to like feel a certain way going into training. And one of the things that I think I would not have ever gotten past if Helen wasn't also a part of the team is, uh, like letting go of mountain long runs. (laughs) Cause there have been several times where like your plan just gets totally derailed. And I, that used to like really mess with my head like I'd be like well I didn't get the work in that I was supposed to get because there was snow here or whatever and the more I hang out with Helena the more I'm like it doesn't really matter <laughs> like yeah, you're yeah. still out there for a long time you didn't need to like get the exact workout in if you couldn't get it in
2: yeah it's like if you could just zoom out a little bit and be like okay what are we really trying to accomplish here and it's like one day does not make the training cycle you know like for that month for that year and like what we're building to ultimately over time
0: Yeah. And as a coach, I tell people that all the time, but as an athlete, I'm like, but is that true?
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's it's easy to say harder to do. Right.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I'm everybody on this podcast or that listens to this podcast knows that I mostly run sub ultra races. Like the most I run is, um, 50 K OCC will be my, would have been my longest race at 55. Um, but I'm running black Canyon tomorrow. And I'm just curious, like, what were your initial thoughts when I approached you about racing black Canyon, probably having told you like two months earlier that I'd never run hundred K.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I always try to never encourage athletes to race longer distances or like push them to. And oftentimes I hold athletes back. I did this with Helen for a long time. She wanted to run hundred miles or, or longer for a while. And it's just, I've seen too many athletes go down an unhealthy road chasing those. And it's not that running long distance is unhealthy necessarily, but you can start to get caught up in, in that race and then you might be doing too much. And it's just a lot of pressure. And so I think if you can just like hold back just a little bit, get a little bit of experience and some of the other races and distances and, you know, not race too much or too many long races in a year that can add longevity and years onto an athlete's career. And so I think, When you initially approached me, I was surprised in the fact that you finally wanted to, but I think for a while I had always thought that you would be good at long distance, especially like runnable long distance races, Um, just because you've always had good foot speed. You're uh, very efficient. Um, And so I, I wasn't hesitant to say yes. And I think at that point too, I always felt like we had this big buildup and at at worlds and you had this, this good race at worlds. And then you kind of had this, like, this mental kind of like lag after that and kind of like what's next. And especially then when you're not able to race and and you're the back half of your season kind of didn't go as as the way you planned. Um, I think that you needed something new to kind of like get that spark. And I think, Sometimes when you're racing really competitive sub ultras, I see this a lot with the really fast races, especially I think in the last two or three years, it's gotten really fast and really competitive. You know, you can, you can miss out and you can be, you know, out of the top 10 within a couple of minutes. Right. And it's like, it can be so demoralizing. You're like, well, you had a great race and two years before that you would have won the race, but it's like the competition is so high right now. The courses I think have gotten a little bit easier and more runnable. Um, and I, and that's drawn in a lot more foot speed to the races. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that's the reality of the situation. So you need to be prepared for it. So I think that's why you're seeing races play out a little bit more like a cross country or a a track race where it's like, you know, people are finishing in the sequential order. That's very quickly. Um, and so I think for you, you kind of needed something to push yourself mentally and and try something new to like something just like a little bit to freshen up the the staleness you'd had from like kind of those similar kind of 50k mountain races so I was I was excited when you said it um I always want to make sure that you feel like you're actually ready you know so we kind of sit on it for a little bit make sure you're actually <laughs> really willing to do it and then I you know I kind of joke with you like even though that you're you're signing up for this race like we're still going to build back up very slowly and you were very very, uh, concerned with how slowly we were starting to build back up. Um, but yeah, I was excited. I think the race, you know, a lot of the coaching that I do is, is, I think is based off of specificity for the racing, right? The style, the distance. And so it's a good race for you to do. It's a, it's a faster hundred K, um, time-wise it's competitive. So that makes it fast. Um, obviously the elevation is low temperature looks great this year. So I don't think, yeah it's going to be an issue. Um, it's, it's rocky. And so it's similar terrain that, that you have like around Reno and that you've had in Vegas. And so I think all of those factors, I think if you would have been like, Hey, I'm going to just go and do this, like 20,000 feet of vertical hundred K I'd have been like, Oh, that's Bad idea. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I, I just, you know, kind of looked at where we were at and thought, do we have enough time to prepare for this properly? And if you feel like mentally you can do it. And a big thing with athletes that live like in places where it snows is that, you know, can you be ready mentally to be out grinding in the winter time right? December, January, it can be tough for athletes when it's snowing and especially if you're a skier and you want to be out cross-country skiing or downhill skiing. Um that can be kind of hard to do. So I think, you know, you kind of lucked out. Ski season kind of was like lagging behind. It wasn't a great yeah. year. Um you also hadn't raced for a while. So like you were kind of like excited to kind of continue on the training. You have great access to places like going down to Bishop and getting similar train, going down to Auburn to get that runnable um train. And then luckily like where you've lived, it's been, you know, dry and runnable. So you haven't had it like run out on the the roads for a hundred miles a week. So
0: oh, gosh yeah, yeah. I'm,
2: a- I'm excited for what you're doing. I don't think you know, we did anything drastic or crazy as far as like going from like subwoofer training to like a hundred page training. It, typically elite athletes, once they're, you're training at a specific level, if you're running, you know, 80 to hundred miles a week, it, you it's more about manipulating the volume and the intensity than it is of like, oh, we need to do any of these like grandiose ideas, right? So it's like, hey, let's add in a couple of like back-to-back longer runs. Let's back off on some of the shorter sessions. Let's add on some strength. Um, we worked a lot on the the specifics of that f- kind of that foot speeding efficiency at like high zone two, you know, flat yeah. Um, we did like some downhill stuff. So just the specifics, like the demands of what the race requires to make sure you're prepared for it. But as far as um the training itself, you know, I don't think we did anything other than just extending some of the sessions or or weekends, the volume.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people would imagine that like training for you know, uh, mot blog marathon and training for black Canyon are going to be like drastically different. And I guess in some ways they are because I'm not getting as much vert in a week. Like I am maybe getting 10,000 feet as opposed to like 20 to 25. Um, but like my volume has been pretty much exactly the same as it normally would be. Like I'm somewhere between mm-hmm. 90 to hundred miles a week, but instead of it being like spread out, it just seemed like my week, it was more focused on the weekends. Instead of Mm -hmm. like, you know, usually I I run the same mileage, but my, I'm not doing 50 miles in two days.
2: (laughs) Yeah. 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 And what, I mean, one session that I have you do that I I love to do for longer races, really anything over 50 K is, is doing those like mountainous hilly runs on like a Saturday. And then the runnable runs on a Sunday, um, you know, and for you, it might be 20, 25 miles each day. So it's like close to race distance. And I think that that really helps of you can do some efforts like on Saturday, whether it's like uphill or downhill. And then Sunday, you can get used to running on tired legs, but also making sure that you kind of have that efficiency and turnover for the distance. Um, and that seems to work really well for runners. And I've even used that for like back to the pack runners. It's a, an effective session. As long as you're able to like build up to it appropriately, it, it works pretty well. And then, you know, we added on some of those like big I think I think you have to, if you want to be competitive, you certainly need to run, you know, that, that 25 to 30 mile range for one run, you know, at like a, with either race pace efforts or some specificity in order to really do well at these races. Um, and so we just kind of mix those in and made sure that you were handling the volume and the load and not picking up any, any, any niggles or injuries. And
0: Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of, uh, gets us to, I guess the taper section of this that, uh, I mentioned earlier, you don't really taper me much typically like, and I think it started, correct me if I'm wrong, but like before Broken Arrow in 2021, I had Mm -hmm. gone to a race in Sweden and absolutely eviscerated my ankle. And then, uh, Broken Arrow was like six weeks later (laughs) or something like that. And so we did, we basically did a reverse training block in a way where you had to like build me up into broken arrow and Mm -hmm. instead of like tapering me down because I had to take two weeks off and then I was like kind of on the treadmill and then on the trails. And um, so in my head, that's when the short taper started, but I'm wondering like why you don't taper me as much.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think people need to know the background first. You have this innate ability to like (laughs) roll your ankle like three to four weeks before almost every race, like, terribly. And so it always puts me in this position of like, right as the peak of training is happening, somehow you roll your ankle and, and put <laughs> us in this position of like, okay, how do we get to the race now? Um, and so I've actually found with with injuries specifically over time that these almost reverse tapers have been really effective for athletes getting back into races. It's almost like re- getting a little bit of that fatigue out. And then building the mileage back up one, I think it, it gets rid of a lot of that. Am I doing enough jitters like worse before the race. And then also, I think you can maintain a fairly high aerobic volume going into the races, as long as you've been able to sustain that over time and it doesn't affect your racing. I think where you have to be careful with is things like the downhill, like the eccentric loading or, you know, too fast at intervals or. How you mix the mileage up with those maybe one to two weeks before the race but yeah i think you can carry fairly high mileage going into these races so yeah i think at that, that point we had tested out a few different theories because that everyone responds differently some people do really well with like with these big tapers and some people do well with not tapering at all and so it's like it's very individualized and it's also not just like, Oh, I did well at this race because I did this right. And so we have to try to like, not draw these tangents, like, because you did so well at this race. And so what I try to do is look over time. Okay. Like when we build through maybe some of these races that were like B races or like, not how well did you race? How are you feeling going to this? And then how did you actually race? Right. And so yeah. over time we started to see, okay, if we maintain the volume, and then cut back on some of the intensity and then just add a little bit, like right before the race, you seem to perform better. And so we just sort of maintain that. I also think too, like if you have a lot of these like ups and downs constantly in training, you tend to have a lot of like ups and downs in races. And so it's like, yeah. oh, I felt great this race, not this race. And so I feel like if you can kind of maintain that over time, not only getting the benefit of maintaining that mileage and volume, you know, over years is, is what makes people racing uh, race so well once they get older. Um, but also I think you have less of these fluctuations in race results because you're not always wondering, did I taper too much? Did I taper too little? It's like, let's just tweak a few things and then drop it down. You know, I've noticed like certainly dropping like the vertical in the in like the two weeks before that can really help because that can leave your legs feeling a bit flat. Um, yeah. So little things like that, that we can adjust to help, uh, you know, like, uh, Helen's kind of the same way I have her do typically have her do like really big runs right before a race. Um, and so oftentimes like six days out from the race, I think like, I don't know if it was like broken arrows, might've been both, but she was running, she would do like 20 milers before the race. And so, I think is one, you have to have a lot of trust in your athletes, knowing that they're not going to do too much in that time. Right. And so that's another thing is like having that trust in the athletes. Like, okay, if I tell you to do this, can you actually control yourself during, you know, and do what you need to be doing because that can affect your race. Um, but also just seeing how athletes then respond to that. And some athletes get confidence too, carrying that over. So we just, I, I always take it like an athlete, Basis. And sometimes we get, get it wrong. so We have to adjust. And, you know, I think sometimes you just have to look and see over a long period of time, what tends to work. And then we just try to incorporate that regularly for athletes. Cause there's so many things that go wrong as you know, in races like travel and like you might get sickness or you get a little niggle or so you always have to be flexible and try to just figure out like, how can I get my athlete like healthy as possible and happy as possible, like, and mentally prepared to do the race.
0: Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point too. Uh, You mentioned that like we have tried different things and sometimes it doesn't always work. And I think that um, a lot of athletes don't often give coaches enough time. Like they're like, oh, well I had this coach for this race and it didn't work out. So like I got a new coach and it's like, Mm -hmm. you lose the consistency, but also like, yes, a, a coach knows what they're doing. Like they've done the research, like they've you know, trained a bunch of other athletes, but you're not all the other athletes. So you still have to do some amount of like experimenting and learning about these people in order for them to like have success. So like long-term coaching, in my opinion, at least, and I'm sure in yours as well, is like way more successful than if you're like constantly bopping around trying to change it up or, you know, keep things fresh or whatever you want to call it. Like consistency Mm -hmm. is the key in any training.
2: For sure. Yeah. And I think, I, I see athletes do that, especially like post collegially in this space where they're trying to figure out, like, should I have a coach, should I not have a coach? And they feel this immense pressure to then take on a coach. Yeah. And I think oftentimes they compare tra- trail running to the way like the collegiate system works. And they're like, oh, I have this like finite time to like get a contract and like win races. And, you're... and more oftentimes, if you just like develop this relationship with a coach, Oftentimes it's like the fit, you know, I have some athletes that approach me that I haven't worked with, that I had, we both decided that it's just not a good fit because they need something else from their coach. And I also need something else from the athlete. And if, if that doesn't work, it's, I, I don't want to run like this coaching empire where I just like take on everybody and I just throw all these eggs on the wall and here's like a training plan. And, and it works for a few people and they do really well and win, win these races and a whole bunch of people are just like you know, not to be dramatic, but like destroy their lives of like, they feel <laughs> like they never had a chance in the sport or they like ruin relationships or they felt like they got the short end of the stick. You know, it's like, I want to try to work with these athletes to, I, I love working with post collegiate athletes that like want to get contracts and want to be sponsored. And, but we tr- we try to do it in a way that's like sustainable and over time because Athletes tend to sell themselves short and they, they feel this pressure. Like, if I don't do it this year, then I've just got to like go and work like the nine to five, you know? And it's like, yeah. Let's find a way to like work into this and like gradually work our way through the sport. Um, and you can have a long career. You see tons of athletes who are in their late 30s that are making a lot of money in the sport and been doing this a while, you know? It's <laughs> like at 23, if you haven't made it, you still have some time.
0: Oh my gosh. If I had given up at 23, I'd be. I'd be nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I've had people ask me that before where they're like, well, wouldn't you want to like switch it up? You know, like try some new stuff. And I'm like, well, that's the thing is like I I have a coach that I trust and I have a relationship with and we do try new things like all the time. Like we talk about like, Oh, the training for this race, like was pretty great. And I felt good doing this one. And like, this was the time this year that I felt the best in a race and we take all that information and we make something new instead of having to start completely over with somebody else and form a new relationship. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that. It's like a hairdresser, (laughs) like same thing. I have one hairdresser. I can't go anywhere else because I have curly hair. So don't even ask me to like (laughs) switch it up.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I always tell people like, I'm never worried that athletes are going to like leave need to go with somebody else or something because i i never sell athletes on a training plan or a theory you know it's like if i always form my coaching around the relationships that i have with my athletes that's something that they can't just go and and buy or get somewhere else right and yeah. so that's an, an intangible difference of what i try to provide to the athletes is the relationship and the communication that we have you know on a daily point like i said there are certain things that I don't know. And there's certainly coaches that know more than me. And I just try to always do my best to provide the best information to my athletes. And, you know, if anybody ever wants to go to another coach, I would never get upset or this is ultimately it's, it's their career and their lives. And I think because I worked with student athletes in the college for so long, like I, I know, How difficult this process can be over time. And so I just want people to be happy, happy in the way that they approach this. And if they're not happy with the situation, I certainly don't want to continue, you know, working with them when they could try something else. So.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I feel like you and I could literally uh, do a podcast for like two whole hours, but um, (laughs) I know that you're going to get kicked out of where you're sitting uh, sometime. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of like more general questions before we close out here. Um, I think I already know the answer to this question um, because it's been something that you've been commenting on my Strava for many years now, but uh, what do you consider to be the most critical aspect of any training block?
2: Are you referring to when I comment too fast on your training? (laughs)
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) That that, that was like the, the uh, thing that I would do all the time when you first started. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, trying to get athletes to slow down, certainly on all lot of their training, especially post-collegially is, is something that I've kind of preached on a lot. Um, I think there's a, a time and a place for running consistent mileage at a, at a good clip, you know, if you're training for a road marathon or something like that. But overall, in general, to keep athletes healthy, you know, I I always try to limit injuries for my athletes. And I take a lot of pride in knowing like, I don't have, my athletes don't get a lot of like bone injuries and tendon injuries and things like that. And sometimes I'm maybe a little bit protective or hold athletes back a little bit, but it, it's enough to where I can like zoom out and be like, here's the big picture. It's like, we could, we could push a little bit here and this could affect you for years to come, or we could just like hold back a little bit and you can have a longevity in the sport. And so I think that that's something that I'm always kind of struggling with, but yeah, I definitely think you know, easy running. And then a big thing is just like the specificity of training of races. I think now they're getting so competitive in, in all of the racing, like whether it's mountains or or roads or just uphill. Um, there's a lot of different ways to train and a lot of different styles of races. And people come from so many different backgrounds that you just have to learn and adapt to each athlete and train them more specifically for these races. Because, you know, we're not all people like, you know, Killian or Courtney who can win any race that we enter. And so sometimes I think that those ideas in there of these people who are at the pinnacle of the sport that like, well, if I just do this, I can, I can do any race that I want to do. And it's just too competitive and too hard in this sport. And I think that that, the, the trajectory of the sport, the way it's going, it's going to continue only to get faster and more competitive. And so we just have to almost go into way of like, okay, you need to be a 5k person. you know, you can't just be like, I can be ready for the VK and to win the UTMB and to, <laughs> to do yeah. all of these different races, you know,
0: those, those athletes are far and few between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. I got a Strava memory like a week ago from when I was living in Vegas, when uh, you were first training me and commenting on my runs that I was running too fast all the time. And it was a run that was like 720 pace or something and my description was like chill super easy day and you would not catch me running like faster than eight minute pace on on any of those runs now (laughs) super chill just hanging out at 720 pace but like that was my entire collegiate career was just me running all of my easy mileage at seven minute pace at altitude
1: yeah
2: see i mean it only took me what six years to get that
0: yeah And now Helen and you and Tommy have turned me into a little bit of a jogger.
2: Yeah. Jogging. right.
0: This one I'm curious about because I know you coach people that are in a couple of different uh, areas of the country. And so Mm
1: -hmm.
0: for athletes without access to like mountainous train or trails, how do you um, structure their training for a mountain race?
2: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I always tell athletes you're at huge disadvantage. You know, if you live somewhere flat, um, And you want to do a really mountainous race, especially if it's at altitude, you know, it just kills me. It's because it's like, it's (laughs) it's so hard to do and it's not, you know, I almost feel bad because it's just, you don't have the same opportunities, right. If you live in Reno versus, um, you know, if you live in flat Texas or whatever it is and certain people are able, I think the big thing is, is if you can build up to a really strong marathon type fitness, you can tend to race well at a lot of those distances Um, and then you, if you have access to a treadmill, you can do uphill intervals for strength, you know, whether it's like shorter intervals or long continuous runs, you can do a stair climber for like really specific steep terrain. Um, but I think the big disadvantage you have is one is, is altitude if you're living lower. And then two is the eccentric loading for the downhills. So a lot of times athletes, you know, they could be running and be really fit and running 90 miles a week and feel like they're ready for these big races. And they might be for the uphills, because as long as you have that leg strength, you can do it. But the eccentric loading over time, especially in a race, catches up to you. And so if you haven't done any of that, it's going to really affect your race. And so I would say those people who live there, if they have any type of hills, I would have them do short downhill reps. I mean, I have you do that in like the wintertime. You find any hill you can find, and you run fast down it, right? So it might be three by a mile. Um, But if you only have, say, a 300-meter hill, you know, we might do... 10 reps of that or something, but it's really hard. And that's going to like help load your legs. And that's probably the best you could do. Um, I would even have an athlete if they were able to take a trip rather than focusing specific on long runs, like, let's go and like work. Some of these really steep downhills to get some of that eccentric loading because you don't need a lot of it, but you have to have some in your legs in order to perform at those races. Otherwise you're just going to be shattered by the end of the race.
0: Yeah. Unless it's like a, an all uphill and then all downhill race, but that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually, usually you have to turn around and go back uphill at some point.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, And final question for you is which coach, if any, has had the most significant impact on your approach to coaching? It could even be your high school football coach.
2: <laughs> oh gosh. Ironic. So here's an interesting bit is my high school football coach is now the University of Nevada football coach, Jeff Cho. No way. Yeah, he was my football That's coach. Crazy. <laughs> um so he was a hard-headed, very strict, tough coach. Um but anyways, as far as running goes, um, people that I I tend to be really diversified in like the type of people that I look up to are the coaches because of coming from triathlon. So most of the coaches that I knew originally you know, um, or guys that I train with, like Matt Dixon, who worked with Jesse Thomas. And, um, there was a great swim coach in, um, LA, um, that started tower 21 his name's Jerry Rodriguez. And he's like a world renowned swim coach. I really liked the way that he, I went down and worked with him for a week one time. And I just, I just had emailed him and said, Hey, can I come down and come? And like, he just was like, sure. Yeah. Come down and swim with the group. He was like so approachable and like you could tell his athletes really liked him. He was he wasn't this loud person. He was just like he would work with each person no matter who showed up and um I really appreciated like his like bedside manner kind of like with each swimmer like in the pool. So that's someone that I really look up to. Uh like Mario Fraioli in the running world. Like mm-hmm. he's like his coaching, you know, I always find athletes will be like, "Oh, I didn't realize this guy was coached by Mario or um I think a lot of his information is just really science-backed and really informative. He's great at writing. So I love to read anything that he writes. Um, he's just like a wealth of information, his podcast, uh, and then just like research people like Steven Seiler, you know, uh, out of Norway, he has tons of great information, all the Norwegian training <laughs> is all the rage. Right. Um, and then, um, a lot of like the coaching mentality stuff I get from Nick Saban, Alabama football, previously, previous. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, tough to swallow. Um, but his focus on like the process and getting the most out of individuals. Right. So what I try to always tell my athletes is like focusing on the process, not the result, um, you know, like be happy and healthy, like in the training, because like racing is such a small percentage of what you do, it, you know, your husband, me he calculated one time. It was like yeah. 1% of all of his, uh, his activity was racing. And I was like, listen, if you're not happy in the (laughs) 99%, right. And you're you're doing all of this training and you're miserable just to be happy for this 1%, like it's not a way to live. So let's find a way to make this, you know, most enjoyable. And then if you have a few bad races, well, it's only, you know, 1% of your, your total activity for the year. So it's, it's not really that bad. So yeah, focusing on the process and getting the most out of individuals, um, Each person is what I try to do. So those are kind of people that I look up to. I'm always reading about whatever new research articles and, and people, you know, any information I can dig up or science things. I try to do like peer-reviewed stuff, try not to get too caught up in like the fads and look at kind of like the trends over time versus like, oh, what's the latest, you know, workout to do that everyone's doing this year type thing.
0: Yeah. Let's all do double threshold all the time.
2: Double (laughs) threshold is it, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I remember when Tommy did that uh, math on his Strava or whatever and I think he found out that I had run like like my races were like 7 or 8% or something of my year. He's like you race too much. I was like whatever dude. You would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I just like to race. Tommy likes to train and that's just who we are.
2: <laughs> yeah, we we just got to make everybody happy.
0: Exactly. And actually I thought that was the last question, but Danny put a question in here uh, that I have to ask you, which is from your perspective, should I consider accepting a golden ticket if I'm, if I happen to race myself into one tomorrow? Oh
2: gosh.
0: Um, <laughs> I've it, already said on at least two podcasts that I'm not taking it. So
2: <laughs> I know. Right. So this was never a thing. One, I never liked to have athletes just like spring up and be like, Oh, let's just do a golden ticket. Like quick side <laughs> story. Like, when Helen raced CCC, I didn't even know it was a golden ticket race because mm-hmm. it wasn't a consideration. I already told her like you are not racing Western states yet type thing. So she we didn't even think about it. So the fact that I know this is a golden ticket race makes this a little bit difficult. And I've gone back and forth about like what I would do. I think for this race, physically you can be ready. I I can prepare you as best as possible. Um, but I think for these type of races, you have to be mentally prepared. Um, and I think uh, they're going to kick me out in 10 minutes, the library. Interests.
0: Perfect timing.
2: Um, <laughs> and so, but it's funny. Do you remember when you text me when you were, when you were crewing for, or you were pacing that Western States? And I said,
0: I will and never run this you, race.
2: You said, <laughs> uh, I, I don't have the bug. Um, that does not look fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: And so um, I think, yeah, I would be, I wouldn't say no, but I would say if you were a hundred percent mentally prepared to suffer, then I would say yes. Because physically, we can have you ready, but mentally, can you be ready to be down in that canyon when this year it's going to be terribly hot? Right? Yeah. Um, you know,
0: I think that Western states would have to start offering like appearance fees yeah. <laughs> for me to want to come.
2: But it's a it's a draw. I mean, you get sucked in. You get down there. It's <laughs> exciting. People are racing. It's like. There's so much camaraderie with the event and it's so iconic. And so, you know, I think turning down golden tickets, certainly something you don't want to do regularly. Right. Cause it's like, yeah. they become harder and harder to come by. But also I think it's something like, if you're not preparing for it, you don't want to put yourself in a the position then to do a race that you're not prepared to go deep into because yeah. that's, that's what it takes to perform at that race.
0: Yep. I told Tommy the other day that if I turn it down, I have to turn it down knowing that I may never get one again and be okay with that. It. True. so well thank you so much for um chatting with us today or chatting with me i'm used to danny being here too um <laughs> I, i'll let you go since you're about to get kicked out of the library but yeah thanks again and hopefully people get some good insight about like coaching and what a coach athlete relationship sh- i don't know maybe i shouldn't say should because i'm biased but should look like <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah thanks mk it
0: Uh, This has been the Subhub Podcast brought to you by FreeTrail.